When you write a book, there are essentially three stages. First stage is planning. Second stage is you write a draft. And the third stage is rewriting slash editing. And different writers will give different emphasis to those stages. So there are some people who do no planning, so they will tell you. And then you've got some people who try to write it perfectly the first time and so on. So I'm a big planner. I spend a lot of time, maybe a year for a novel planning. I then start the draft and I work hard and in a concentrated sort of way for about two months. That part is the part that I have a routine for. I get up in the morning, I read what I wrote the previous day and correct that. So just give it one pass. You can always make it a little bit better. But then I look at what I'm going to write today and then I go for a 3.8 kilometre walk. All I'm thinking about is how do I write that? How can I make that interesting, fun, whatever? Go back, sit down, write it. It's the day. That is best-selling Australian author Graham Simpson. And this is part two of episode 273 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Thank you so much for being here. This is part two of my conversation with Graham Simpson. If you've not heard part one, please get on it. If you don't know who I am and you don't know who Graham is, you'd better just go back at your podcast feed, listen to part one. I'll explain the whole thing. I'm glad you're here. I'll get to the show quickly today, but I do want you to think about coming to check out the live shows that we're doing. We're coming up uh, doing a regional tour in the Spiegel Tent, Wollongong, Canberra, and the Gold Coast. You can get tickets at osherginsberg.com. Come and see the show. It's me. It's Mike Mills. Uh, we tell stories. We sing songs. We sign books. And there's merchandise. We're making merchandise now. It's We're, it's, we're going global. Prestige worldwide, eat your heart out. It's happening. There's merchandise. So um, we're very excited by that. Uh, but please do get in touch if you need to know anything uh, at all. Thank you very much um, for everybody who let me know about part one and part two coming out a little further apart. We're squishing them up. Let me know what you think about them coming out Monday, Tuesday. Uh, send Osher email at gmail.com or you can join up on the Facebook group, osher.is slash FB group. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. My guest today is the incredibly successful author, Graham Simpson, author of the Rosie Trilogy, The Rosie Project, The Rosie Effect, and now most recently, The Rosie Result. In the first part of our conversation from yesterday, we talked a lot about neurodiversity and the main character, Don Tillman's autism spectrum tendencies. For part two, we're truly going to get stuck into how you go about writing a monster success like Graham has done. I, I certainly hope you enjoy this part two conversation with Graham Simpson. When you write a screenplay, you know, particularly when you originally uh, wrote your, I, I have done this. I, I also, I mean, you admitted, you know, the quality of yours. <laughs> Mine was probably way, way, way worse. I, I've kept somewhere the email that we got back from the bloke that we got to read it. And he's like, I stopped reading at page seven because nothing fucking happens. Like, <laughs> well, that's that's a very typical. You got to page seven, you did yeah. well. Thanks, Ken. But, yeah. Appreciate it, man. Uh, that's but yeah, very much the story. Yeah. So it is It is something that, that, that I have done, but I, I definitely appreciate it and I enjoyed uh, the writing process. My story is easy because I know it. To write, yeah, but you, you did it well, and it's it's it's. I think it's very hard to write about yourself, um, and particularly to write reflectively about yourself. And, and you've still got to tell a story. You've still got to organise. You've got to decide what to leave in and what to. Yeah, yeah it's what, true. Yeah, what, what to I had, take out. And I had great editors yeah, who, yeah. who helped me. And I and I say it a lot. Is that you write it? I wrote it about four times. Yeah, you know, I wrote it. You know, I gave them one hundred and forty-eight thousand. Yeah. Kind of went from there, um, you know. For people who are wondering, you know, they they, because I, I remember feeling it. I'd go into a, to a library or go into a bookshop and go, "How did you do that? You know, writing a hundred words at school was hard. How did you write eighty thousand or hundred thousand? Yeah. hundred thousand. What does your day look like when you're on a writing day? Okay, so so let me just put this in, in some sort of context. When when you write a book, there are essentially three stages. First stage is planning. Second stage is you write a draft. And the third stage is rewriting slash, slash editing. And different writers will give different emphasis to those stages. So there are some people who do no planning, so they will tell you. you know, Lee Child and Jack Reacher series and so on says, I don't plan, I just sit down and I start. But he says for the first few weeks he's really, really struggling. I think I know why you're struggling, you've got no plan, but it's probably formulating itself subconsciously a- as you go. And then you've got some people who... Um, do very little editing. They try to write it perfectly the first time and so on. So I'm a big planner. I spend a lot of time, maybe a year for a novel, planning, thinking about what's going to happen. Mainly just coming – imagine you were doing your, your memoir. The way you do it in my scheme would be you'd start thinking about things that happened in your life that you wanted to include in the book. You'd write a card, you know, a very screenwriting thing to do. You'd write a card that says uh, – you know, the, the day I decided to stop drinking or whatever, like that. So, boom, that's a whole, you know how it's going to go. You throw that in the hat, whatever. And after a while, you've got to, you think, you, I've done, you know, I've got my 200 cards or so. Then for me to be over a month or so, I'm going to shuffle those around. I'm going to get the story to make, to make sense. Um, I've got the cards. I've now got the scenes, you know, the, the passages that I'm going to write all lined up. So I then start the draft and I work hard and in a concentrated sort of way for about two months, 
maybe less. I, I'm, the, the Rosie project was really pretty well formed and it took me about three weeks. Um, the Best of Adam Sharp took me just over two weeks. Um, the current book took me, uh, the Rosie result took me, I think, just under two months and 60 days. And But you get up, then I've got a routine. That part is the part that I, I have a routine for. I get up in the morning, I read what I wrote the previous day. So I get in the morning, I have my coffee, but I have a shower. Read what I wrote the previous day and, and correct that. So just give it one pass. And, and you can always make it a little bit better. Then I go for a walk, but then I look at what I'm going to write today. And it can be like two scenes, three scenes. It's not a lot. It's like uh, Don, uh, Don meets with a school teacher. I'm looking at, looking at about 1,500 words top. So Don meets with a school teacher. Don talks to Hudson about how the meeting went. Job's done. And then I go for a 3.8-kilometre walk, and it's 3.8 kilometres because that's how far it takes to walk a little around where we've got a place in the country. That's that's the walk I do. Nothing different, just there, and I'm just in my own headspace. All I'm thinking about is how do I write that? How can I make that interesting, fun, whatever? Go back, sit down, write it. That's the day. Now, that can take all of that can take you know, leaving out the walk an hour and a half or it can take six or seven hours. And then I go up next day and review it. So, uh, and then finally, I'm doing the editing, and that's that's a process where, for me, you can do it anywhere. You can be sitting at the airport, you just flip the laptop open, you say, "What's the worst paragraph in this book?" And you go to it, you make it a bit better, and you've made an improvement before the, they call the flight. When uh, what I find fascinating about that is the uh, the, the the process does involve uh, a bit of putting it all down, I'm going to do something else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When you're in that, how long does the walk take? About 45 minutes? Yeah, about 45 minutes, yeah. 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 When you're in that space, do things just pop up? Yeah, you know, you know what? I, it's, I've got myself to a place where I know that something will come up from every walk. I've never done the walk and come back and said I've got nothing out of that. I mean, I already have an idea of how the scene will go. What I'm looking for is something that will make it better, some twist that might turn the whole thing on its head, it might, it might be just a little funny bit of dialogue or something that might go in there. And I will actually say, and when I start, there's nothing in my head, and I will say to myself out loud, trust the process. Trust the process. It always works. It'll always give me something. And, of course, every time it's happened and given me something, it reinforces that, that trust. So it's a good place to be. I mean, I'm very interested in how creativity works, and that was my PhD was looking at how that – I learned a lot about it there. But one of the places that creativity often works for people is when you're doing a mechanical thing like walking, trust no thought arrived at, sitting down, said uh, somebody. Um, <laughs> Sounds all right. Yeah. You erased it as if it were real. Trust no thought arrived at uh, sitting down. Minkin, I think. So that's very deliberate. It's the same time of day. It's all of that. Um, and you know, with problems, you've got a problem that needs to be solved in it. You work really hard on it, and then you just—if you haven't got an answer—you then let it brew for a week or two, and your subconscious keeps working on it. I think that's the—I'm—I'm I'm fascinated by that. I was given years ago by a um, probably the best copywriter I've ever met, just a brilliant, brilliant brain radio writer. It was this tiny little 48-page book called A Technique for Producing Ideas. Mm. It was written in the 30s, I think, yeah. by an, a, a New York ad man or Chicago ad man. I think. Right, yeah. And it was basically what you just described. It was like fill your brain full of everything you need, yep. then go do something else. Yep, yep. Incubate. It'll pop up. Yep. And just trust that it will pop up. Yep. Trust it'll pop up. What I, what I would add to that is before you go away and do something else, give it your best shot. 
Mm-hmm. I think I think because that's all about processing what the problem is, you know, giving giving your best shot to that point. And if you haven't broken through at that point, which is what is often going to happen, then you let it brew. But I mean, sometimes you find the solution mm. by giving it your best shot, and that way you're not occupying your mind with a whole lot of extra stuff that you don't need. Yeah, mate of mine, his dad, um, he was a Chicago lawyer. And he said he would – it's exactly what you described. He said he would start his run with a problem yep. and he would come back with a solution. Yep. And when I'm – it happens to me when I'm – I used to do it all the time when I ran. I can't yep. run anymore. But when I ride my bicycle, every time. Yep. It'll always pop in. Yep. And look, look the thing I would say on coaching people on creativity is note what works. What works – we're talking about different brains and what's what's right for one brain is not necessarily right for another. Same stuff. You say, where do I have my good ideas? And if you have your good ideas in the shower, well, take a shower. You just, or if you work well in the morning, make note that you have creative ideas in the morning. I know that my best, my best creative ideas, as distinct from just how do I'm going to write this chapter, typically happen after one glass of, sorry about, one glass of booze, one drink, and you know, anything that happens after more than one drink is, you know, is brilliant, but it doesn't look that way in the morning. <laughs> so. That, that, that sort of one drink space, and we manage it. My wife and I will say, okay, it's six o'clock, have a drink. Now let's talk about where we're going. And I'm sure it would be doable without the drink if that was your lifestyle, if you like. But you know, said, that's the spot. That's the sweet spot in our day where we're most likely to have to have ideas. So let's not waste it by sitting on social media during that time or something. Let's say this is a time to talk about what we're writing because she writes as well. I know a guy that swears by uh, a cup of what that, the bulletproof coffee, so a strong cup of coffee with like, I don't know, some sort of weird oil blended yeah. blended through it, a three-mile run, which is 5Ks, yep. and then he comes home, has a shower, and has two hits on a joint, Yep, and then he, boom, he's on, Yep, and he just writes. He's written about seven books. Yeah, look, and, and far be it from me to say um, – you got to smoke in order to do it, but, but or, or drink. But if it's working for you, yeah, yeah. great. And if it's not working for you, try something. Try something else. Yeah. I mean, what I would say to most writers is, you've got too many unskilled writers, you know, emerging writers out there who are trying to write the perfect draft without any planning, and and expecting the magic to happen. And the trouble is, they're asking their mind to do too many things at once, to come up with a plot, to come up with characters, to come up with good prose. I'm not that smart. And I'm an experienced writer. I'm say, my mind can concentrate on plot and character. When it's got that sorted, then it can concentrate on writing that stuff well, and then it can concentrate on well, making that really well. It's just the middle stage really just get it down, and then look at the beautiful prose. So you're trying to do it all at once. Is I think some people can do it, and if you can do it, I dip some lid, go for it. But most people can't. How do you? Obviously, you've dealt with a few, you know, stressors in your life. Obviously, the deadlines of putting books in and stuff like that and, you know, things that your kids have gone through and stuff like that. How do you deal with, you know, the days that are, that are tough? <sighs> um, yeah, well, I, I'm a drinker and, and I've got to tell you, it's not a good thing. Um, <laughs> I, I wouldn't recommend it to anybody else. Um, I drink too much and that is a, a reaction to stress rather than dealing with stress. I mean, there's a, there's a difference, as you would as you would well know. And it's it's not a solution. It's just a, it's a temporary salve, as it were. It makes it go away. Um, uh, it puts it on hold, mate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look. I don't, know if it's, uh, I don't know if it makes it go away. It's still, uh, what do they say? It's out, there, it's out there doing push-ups in the parking lot while you're asleep. Yeah. So it's stronger the next day. Well, you know, I asked I asked my wife once, 
I said, you know, I was running courses on consulting skills, which were really courses on life skills for a yeah. lot of people. It was, you know, because how do you cope with stress, all those sorts of things? We were talking to consultants. I said to my wife, is there anything you could, you know, what would you say if you give one piece of advice? So I want to say, my wife's a professor of psychiatry. She says, if you give one piece of advice, and you just banged it straight back at me, which is try to keep things in perspective. You know, the, the, the big question is, how much is this going to matter in five years' time? How much does it matter now? Is it a case of life and death that we're looking at here? Or is it a case of you might, what's the worst that can happen? Those sorts of pictures around it. So I think my first uh, thing for dealing with stressors is to say, how important is this really? You know, how much does it matter? And then I'm a solutions-oriented sort of person. So, okay, now that I've, got, now that I've stopped panicking, what, what can I do about this situation? So I think you know, the first thing is, you know, so the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, don't panic. Don't, don't, don't get the thing out of perspective. What's the worst that can happen? Let's, you know, how much will that matter in five years' time? And then start working on, okay, I'm a problem solver. How are you going to solve this one? Yeah, my, uh, my issue there is that I am a gold medal top shelf, gold label, blue ribbon catastrophizer. Yeah. So when I ask what's the worst that can happen, I'm like, well, let me tell oh, you. Let me tell you. <laughs> I'm pretty good with that stuff. Uh, so I have to put an extra step in of like, really? Do I know that to be 100% true? Do yeah. I, can I, am, am I some sort of wizard who can tell you what the future's going to be? Do I have all of the facts? Yeah. No, I don't. No, okay. and, and, and all, there's always a possibility that you're going to walk out there and get hit by a, a tram and it's you know, a truck and it's all over. <laughs> um, you know, that, that's this worst case sort of scenario. Is it's always there. Nuclear bomb hits tomorrow. So, so I'm not meaning to raise these. No, these, no, no, it's fine. But but you know, there's always a possible catastrophe. When you when you when you put that in perspective, you say, well, you know. Yeah. We live with that. That is, we're all going to die one day. It might be today, and you just have to say, "Well, that's that's part of the, the human condition." I was uh, when I worked in my, I worked for a little while in Amsterdam at this uh, business school there, and I asked a computational neuroscientist whose job it was to advise the five largest insurance companies in the world on risk. All right, he's yeah, like yeah. proper knows all the data, right? And I said, oh, "So, what do you tell these people about climate change?" I say, "Don't worry about it because the threat of nuclear war is something like you know yeah. four hundred <laughs> times more than that." Uh, well, <laughs> yeah. Look, I've got views on that too, which is probably in line with you, you know, the guy you're talking to. But you know, I think think there was something that helped me actually. It wasn't the best thing to do, but I had a near death experience. I had. Um, a kidney failure after running a marathon, and uh, yeah, I read about that. Yeah. You, you were fifty-one years old, and you—I think you just completed your PhD. Yeah, yeah. 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 And you thought, like, oh, yeah, I think Canberra Marathon—that'll be all right. Robert De Costello's there; it'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. And um, and, I, and to be fair, I trained. I yeah, you know, I was out there running thirty-five k. I was you know in shape. You I got was... all the way there, and then on the day, your muscles melted down. Yeah, and your your body just tried couldn't process the waste. Yeah. You've understood it completely and it clagged up the kidneys and the kidneys gave up and said, you know, forget it. And I had, you know, eight days in renal failure without knowing it, just feeling very crap. Um, and by the time I got to, oh, my poor wife, because, I mean, she's a, a medico, and, you know, went in, got the got the blood test and so the doctor and he's called back, you know, urgently. And, and when he told uh, my wife what my potassium level was, she, she'd never seen a patient with that potassium level survive. <laughs> so so yeah, it was like, she thought, that's a death sentence. He's gone, you know. But, you know, look, there, was, there was a point where I realised that I was just lying there in intensive care and I realised that I'm, if I went to sleep, I might not wake up. And, look, I think I was, I felt in reasonably good hands, but there's nothing you can do about this. You know, it could happen anyway. And there was a certain amount of resolution that I sort of reached that, OK, if that happens, it happens. And having been in that space... I have never 
since then lost my cool for more than a couple of minutes. I mean, I'm not saying I haven't lost it, but it hasn't sustained. And and I have, you know, I don't know, if, I don't know if you ever really know whether you're ready for death, but I think, okay, you know, I've been in that spot and I was all right. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What a superpower to walk through life with. Well, yeah, it's, 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 um, it's, it cost me a bitch. <laughs> so. Shit, man, I'm not even getting a kid, you know? Yeah, yeah. But, it did. Uh, but I got a story out of it. That was always good. Uh, you know, you, 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 <laughs> everything's you know, content, mate. I, I'm here to tell you everything's content. You are so right. I mean, it, it's, it's a way you reassure yourself. You, know? uh, it's, you say, look, I can use that in a book sometime. This is, <laughs> this is really terrible. But, you know, if you, yeah, maybe I need to write about a guy who just had his leg cut off and I guess I'll be able to use this now. So you're there in intensive care and you realise that if I go to, if I fall asleep, I might not wake up and I'm okay with that and surrendering to the... Well, I was tired. Yeah, well, you were tired. <laughs> but surrendering, surrendering to your powerlessness over it, like I can't grow yep. a new kidney overnight. Yep, yep. Yeah, that, that was it. Um, this is where we are. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was... Uh, I'm sure that you know, the doctors were relatively confident, but... Um, they didn't have enough cause to be. So, yeah, it was, um, it was just a moment. And, you know, I mean, you could even talk me out of it medically if you like. Say, come on, Graham, really? You were very, very likely to wake up and that sort of thing. But that wasn't where my head was at at the time. But, okay, you know, this is where the potassium is. This is, this is it's not going down. It's not, not responding. Mm. I'm not in good shape here. But, hey, I've had a really good life. And that was how I felt, a yeah, really good life. And... At that point, I hadn't written any books or anything, so this has all been a you know, bonus. <laughs> well, well, it's the same thing with the with the you know, bonuses. My my goal with writing a book was to get to get published, and I think almost every author will tell you that's their goal. And once I got published, I promised myself that I would I would be satisfied, that everything else was bonus, and that would be wonderful to enjoy. But because I don't reach number one on the New York Times bestseller list, I'm not going to go and top myself or anything like that. Two will do. <laughs> it's I think it's important because you get people who just continue to flog themselves. And, yeah, sure, aim high, have stretch goals. That's all wonderful stuff. But don't don't beat yourself up when you've already done you know, something you're pretty pleased with. Do you enjoy the process of writing? Yeah, yeah, I enjoy the process. I enjoy all the aspects of it, including the promo stuff, including sitting down talking with you at the moment. And some of that has been sort of learned behaviour. Some of it's saying, Graham, you live in the dream. That means getting up at 4.30 in the morning. You would know that from radio and so forth. It means getting up at some unholy hour when you don't feel like doing it or whatever and say, well, hold on, you're living the dream. This is, this is it. This is as good as it gets. 
And I, th- I think that for me, that's a, a large part of contentment in life is to you got to absolutely recognise that the process is it. It's yep. not the number one of the New York Times bestseller. That might happen for a week. I don't know when they publish it on a Sunday maybe. You, six days, it's you, and then it's someone else. Yeah, it will be. And you'll be saying, oh, I'm off the top now. I thought I was getting another week. Um, I mean, it was like that. We got number one in Germany and, you know, 10, 12 weeks out. We went down. <laughs> well, okay, we had Jennifer Lawrence cast to play Rosie in the in the, in the movie and then she dropped out and all that sort of thing. And you, you celebrate it when it happens and when it goes goes south, you say, well, you know, say la vie. But look, when I was um, when I was studying screenwriting, right at the beginning, um, we had to give a little talk about what our ambitions were and in pairs. So this guy and I got up and said our, our ambition was to make a big Hollywood movie. And the, the the teacher was a bit sort of well, you know, guys. You know, I think you know, getting a getting a script role on Neighbours or something like that is, is more the level we're sort of shooting for. But we did it. We did it, and we, we actually gave a really good presentation where we got people who could talk about exactly that you know, on the phone from overseas and all that sort of stuff and what it took to do it. So anyway, I, I worked pretty hard in the screenwriting course only because I was an old guy who knew, who'd been in a different profession and you know how hard you've got to work. You went from radio to television or whatever. You knew how hard you had to work to get there. You're a pro. Um, and plenty of people drop off because they just don't work hard enough. And there was no point doing it if I didn't uh, work hard enough. So I, I made um, like 10 short films when I don't think anybody else around made more than two. Most of them did none while we were going through all of this. And at one point, I got a couple sold to the ABC and one Swedish television, sort of thing. So it was crazy. And a little play put on at the uh, State Theatre, you know, one of these 10 minute plays and so forth. So I was very pleased with myself. But the teacher, the head of the department, took me aside and said, Graham, what if you don't make it? You're just throwing everything at this. What if you don't get that Hollywood film made? And she was genuinely worried about my well being, about my mental health. And I sort of laughed and said, Look, this is just I'm on the best journey. You can imagine I'm having a fantastic, having a ball. I don't really expect to get a Hollywood movie made. If it happens, that'll be wonderful. But it's not an expectation. It's just you know, a magical sort of end point that I'm going. But it's just such a wonderful journey. You know, it's like walking to Rome or something like that and, you know, wherever and you go through a beautiful country. Which you did, but we might have to talk about that <laughs> on another podcast. That, oh, yeah, there was the time that I walked 2,000 kilometres across Europe. Yeah. Oh, Yeah. yeah. It doesn't have twice now. <laughs> but, but, but material for a novel, it was too. Ah, material for a novel. Um, before we get out of here, I would I would love it if you could. You you have travelled the world. Um, I read, uh, have you hit 50 countries yet? You know, I, I guess I have. I don't actually count. All right. Yeah, I Because I, I, was, I was researching it. It was somewhere around 47, I think, was a Yeah, look, ah, hey, so, so you believe that story about the, uh, the marathon. It's almost all true, <laughs> but I actually changed my age and the number of countries I visited in the first sentence to give myself licence to write the best story and ah. not necessarily the truth. But then it's all the truth. That's fine. <laughs> let's, call let's call it. It's let's still the truth after that. I suppose I've been to about 50 countries, give or take, yeah. Give it or take. There's there's huge more. parts of the world. You know, I've hardly visited Africa. There's a lot of Asia. I've never been to Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos. I mean, so lots of... Yeah. There's a lot to do. Yeah, It's going to be great. But one of the travels that you went on, which is one that fascinates me, is you took a 1962 combi van around Australia. I did, but it was, I've, got, I've got to say that was not last year. It was when 1962 combi van wasn't allowed to hold, relatively speaking. So that was 78. Right. So we live in, an, for some parts of a completely in, unrecognisable country now mm. to what it was oh, in 1978. Absolutely. I mean, going through Broome, for example, which is now a, a resort, 
It certainly wasn't a resort back in 1978. I mean, the, the road between Port Hedland and Broome was completely unsealed. There was you know, Highway 1 unsealed between Port Hedland and Broome and we ended up uh, having to you know, rebuild the engine in a tent at one point along that road. Yeah. When you went around that, I'm sure it took you a number of months, what for you was an experience that, you know, you really took away from that adventure? Gee, it's a, um, I think driving, um, driving out of Uluru actually, you know, which you know, Ayers Rock was, we were the last vehicle that got through before they closed the road coming out of there. Um, so it was a bit of an adventure. It was rained, it rained, and then the roads all what they had mud and just a complete, a complete mess and so forth. So it was a, it's sort of boys' own adventure stuff. It was a hell of a long drive from Uluru to Alice Springs. It's we think of it just being no distance at all the way, but but just through that country and and look the, the sheer magnificence of of Uluru just out yeah, standing out there. And there's something about the beauty of the outback that that requires that you go through it. You don't, you don't just fly over it. Or you don't just arrive there. That, that you need to travel through it. And you know, on foot, would I guess it'd be at some aesthetic level even better. But um, but just even driving through it, just having that experience of the sheer size of it, and that was really my first experience of the Australian outback and just the, you know, the sheer size and scale. And how did it make you feel as a, as a human? Um, look, I don't think it made me feel small. I think I was pretty ego driven back in those days. I remember Zayford Beeblebrox and the. Uh, the total perspective vortex or whatever, and he goes and comes out and says, ah, I saw, saw everything and I'm still important. Um, so I, I don't think I had any any great great personal thing except, look, it was just a visual thing. It was just, and I'm not a visual guy. I think part of it is, and I had the same walk in the Camino, that things were so dramatic visually that I was forced to pay attention, whereas I'm a guy who lives in my head most of the time. So for me, it's a, you know, there are people who walk around and every day they're taking the beauty of what's around them. And here I am, and I couldn't tell you the colour of the walls. You know, I'm just not observant in that way. But sometimes something is just so dramatic and breathtaking that, that you, are, you are forced to just take note of your environment. I, uh, I seek more of that mm. in my life, and I, I can certainly relate to that. The first time I saw Uluru, I, I, I started crying. Yeah, I was just so overwhelmed. Mm. I even think, thinking about it now, I was so overwhelmed by it. And there was no resort out there at the time, so we were in a tent and there weren't many – there weren't the sort of number of tourists that you get today and all the facilities. So we were in a tent in the camping ground and it's just there and the rains came down, the rains all running down the rock. It was quite quite extraordinary. Oh, you saw it with waterfalls. Well, we saw water, yeah, waterfalls wow. coming down. It's just 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 extraordinary thing thing visually. And yet there's not much in terms of scenery that I can just sit back and, and just say, Wow. Yeah, you know, I'm always inclined to intellectualise to say, yeah, okay, I can see how that'd be attractive, but rather than actually getting that visceral yeah, it's the same thing. Walking the Camino, the the best thing for me was learning to pay attention. <laughs> May we all pay a little more attention yeah. in our day. Graham, thank you so much for coming around today, man. Uh, great, uh, great talking to you, Usher. You're a busy man, and I'm uh, I'm, I'm thrilled you popped by. Thanks so much. And um, I'm just going to take your photo real quick, if that's all right. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks, man. That was Graham Simpson. If you want to let him know you heard him here, if you like the show, if you want to 
You know, find out more about him. Find him on Twitter, Graham Simpson on Twitter, G-R-A-E-M-E-S-I-M-S-I-O-N. You can also buy The Rosie Trilogy wherever you buy books. Um, the Rosie Project, The Rosie Effect, and The Rosie Result of The Rosie Trilogy. Thank you so much for everybody that helped Graham get on the show. It was a, a bit of uh, jumping through hoops to get him on, but we managed, and uh, it was he's an incredible guy, a very, very powerful human being to have on the show. I'm really grateful for it. Thank you very much to Rachel Barrett, who did a lot of that um, work to get him on the show, my audio producer, Andy Ma, and Mike Mills, who made all the music today, and you very much for listening. Thank you so much. I hope you, if you live anywhere near Wollongong, Canberra, or the Gold Coast, could come and check out the live show, which we're doing uh, in April. OsherGinsberg.com is where you can get tickets. I'd love to see you there. They'll be singing. They'll be stories. They'll be signing of books. It'll be great to see you. Um, let me know what you think of the show coming out Monday, Tuesday. Send us your email at gmail.com or find me on Instagram or the Facebook group. Until we speak next time, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 